0: From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek.
1: Welcome to a special advanced episode of Forward Thinking. I'm your host, Michael Chewie. Forward Thinking is a new podcast from the McKinsey Global Institute. It's launching in the coming weeks, and as our season unfolds, we'll be exploring some exciting things together. My co-host Anna Bernasek and I will be bringing you fascinating conversations with key individuals working at the forefront of business, technology, economics, science, society, and more. We'll speak directly to those on the frontier, right where the action is. And we'll also hear from some of the brilliant minds helping to make sense of it all. You're going to get the finer details along with the bigger picture. Most importantly, you'll come away from each episode excited about what you've heard. You'll be better equipped to navigate the changing world around us. And you'll want to share what you've learned, so get ready for some water cooler material. Today's episode is a preview of what's to come, a conversation between myself and Jennifer Doudna, one of the scientists who co-discovered the CRISPR gene editing process, considered one of the most significant discoveries in the recent history of biology. She'll describe that moment of discovery and how its implications slowly dawned on her. Jennifer Doudna is a leading biochemist and the executive director of the Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley. When we sat down for a remote conversation, the San Francisco Bay Area was still in full COVID lockdown. I asked her how she was navigating the moment, both personally and professionally.
0: Well, I think like everyone, it's a strange moment we're in right now. It's a time when I think many of us are discovering things or or rediscovering things about ourselves. Uh, I'll give you an example for myself. I'm an avid gardener, but I haven't had any time to work in my garden for, I don't know, six or seven years with all the craziness going on with CRISPR and work that I've been doing at the university. And this past month or so has been an opportunity to reconnect with my garden, my flowers, uh, and rediscover what it means to have a, a maybe a little bit more balanced life. So that's the silver lining, I suppose. Uh, professionally, it's been an opportunity to really pull together with colleagues and ask ourselves, what can we do as scientists to address this current national and international emergency? As you may know, we've been able to pull a team of scientists and computer specialists together at the Innovative Genomics Institute here in the Bay Area of California to build a clinical testing lab that is now testing patient samples for the presence of the coronavirus. And in the future, we will be also helping some local teams to test new types of diagnostics that could provide eventually an at-home test for this and future viruses. It's been a really extraordinary time in many ways.
1: Now, I think a lot of people who are listening probably have watched your TED Talk or, you know, otherwise learned about it. But the one technique that you're most famous for uh, co-discovering is uh, CRISPR-Cas9. If you don't mind, just one more time for us, uh, talk a little bit about what that technique is.
0: Well, you know, CRISPR is, this is a nice segue from talking about a pandemic caused by a virus, because CRISPR is, in fact, a bacterial immune system. It's an ancient system that evolved in microbes to allow prevention of viral infection. And so our interest in this started with that fundamental biology, asking, how does this work? And when we did a collaborative research project with Emmanuel Charpentier, a uh, medical microbiologist Our work with her laboratory revealed that one of the components of this CRISPR immune system is, in fact, a protein that's called Cas9 that can be programmed to find and cut virus DNA. And once we figured out how this protein Cas9 functions, the connection that we made was that this activity of the protein could, in fact, be harnessed for a different purpose in human and plant and basically any other kind of cell, which was namely to introduce a break in DNA at a desired position in the DNA sequence that would trigger cells to repair the break and at the same time change uh, the DNA sequence in a targeted way. And so this was work that we published back in the summer of 2012 and you know, basically, life uh, certainly for me hasn't been the same since. It's been a, a wild ride of you know many uh, labs quickly recognizing that this was a powerful way to control the genetic material in cells or whole, even whole organisms in a, a way that was never possible previously. It's, it's turning into a, a tool that will be used to solve real-world problems, whether it's curing genetic diseases or creating plants that have desired genetic traits. It's just been an extraordinary uh, eight years.
1: If I understand you correctly, this was a natural mechanism that existed already within bacteria. You're just repurposing it in order to, you know, my background is in computer science, in order to program life, roughly speaking. Is that, am I, you know, getting that at some level of understanding at least?
0: Definitely. I think that's a fair statement. It's literally being able to take a protein that can be uh, targeted to a particular position in the genetic information in a cell and trigger a change. And with all of the DNA sequencing that goes on now, we have increasingly, we have access to the whole genome sequence. And if the uh, information in one gene or even a handful of genes There's a need to change it. This tool, CRISPR, can do that. So it's just been an extraordinary opportunity for scientists to not only understand genetics at a much deeper level than was possible previously, but 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 really to rewrite the code of life and rewrite genes in a way that gives us control over cells and organisms uh, with just you know remarkable uh, outcomes.
1: And I'd love to ask you a little bit about whether or not there was a eureka moment, you know, just how did that happen? I'm curious from an intellectual standpoint, how how did you get to that point?
0: It was literally a couple of key experiments that were done in the lab. And this was uh, project that there were really four key people involved in this work. It was myself and, and Emmanuel, and then uh, her in her lab, a student, Chris Chylinski, and in my lab, a postdoctoral scholar, Martin Yinnick. And uh, one day, Martin had done an experiment in the lab that showed that he could program the protein Cas9 to recognize a specific DNA sequence and make a break in the DNA. So DNA is uh, for people that just to as a, a quick reminder, it's essentially it's a double helix. It's two you can think of two strands of a rope that wind around each other and those two strands contain a sequence of letters that provide the code that is required to make a cell or make an entire organism. And what Martin had shown was that you could cut that code of life at a particular position By giving a molecular signal to Cas9, you could program it to find a particular place in the DNA and make a break. And uh, that was just a, you know, incredibly exciting observation. But as you can imagine, it's sort of, you know, a kind of a, one of those nerdy things that you enjoy in, in the lab and you sort of think, well, a few people on the planet might care about this someday. But what I think what really changed everything for us was realizing that that system, once we knew how it worked, we could simplify it compared to how it had been put together in nature and make a very simple way to reprogram the Cas9 protein. And when Martin did that experiment, that was really that aha moment when we looked at each other and said, wow, this could be a really great tool because you can tell it where to go in the code of a cell and trigger a change.
1: Did you say, wow, did you call somebody? What? what how, how did it feel when you figured that out? Were you on email with Martin? What? What?
0: Well, we were in my office and he was sketching his data, sort of a diagram of how we imagined this working on my whiteboard. And we looked at each other and said, boy, that's cool, <laughs> you know, and that, that could be amazing. And I went home and my son was about, eight or nine years old at the time. And so, you know, I was cooking dinner in the kitchen and I I just, I just suddenly just burst out laughing, you know, and my son said, why are you laughing, mom? And I said, because we're working on this crazy protein, you know, and it just, it can find viruses and cut them up. And, you know, and we, he just, he didn't really understand what I was saying, but I tried to kind of draw a little sketch of this, what I was picturing. And it looked like kind of like a race car, you know, zipping around the cell and Grabbing onto viruses and cutting them up. And, you know, then pretty soon he was laughing too. And it was just kind of one of these joyful moments. That's why we do science, because every now and then there's this incredible joy of figuring something out and just realizing that, you know, I'm maybe the first person on the planet to know this little factoid. And it's just incredibly
1: fun. Science can be truly joyful, right? People think of scientists as these uh, automatons, but uh, there's great joy in finding things. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned different applications. At the McKinsey Global Institute, we've been trying to do some research on, you know, the breadth of potential applications of some of these technologies, including ones that, uh, you know, you've been so instrumental in creating. I'd love to hear from you some of the interesting or exciting applications of CRISPR and, you know, uh, you know other technologies around biology that you see coming down the pipe
0: personally, I think that probably the largest global impact of genome editing, at least in in the next few years, will likely be in agriculture. And the reason is that there's so much need for engineering plants that will allow introduction of traits to deal with climate change, deal with pests, reduced uh, application of uh, chemical fertilizers and things like that. So, um, having a technology that allows targeted changes to be made to plant genomes is, in fact, very, very powerful. So this is something that we've been working on at the Innovative Genomics Institute with our purpose really being to identify some of the most urgent needs where companies are not so likely to be putting their efforts for various reasons and where you know having a nonprofit focusing on these applications is a, a good idea. And this is, this is something that I think is um, very interesting, but also highlights some of the ongoing challenges with the technology. Because even though CRISPR works very well for genome editing, and it works very well in plants, I would say there really are two things that hold us back right now. One of them is uh, you know some of the technical aspects of getting genome editing molecules into plants efficiently, and of course, figuring out which genes and plants need to be edited is is an ongoing challenge. But the other bucket really has much more to do with public acceptance and regulatory pipelines. How do you ensure that governments uh, will allow plants that have been edited to be marketed. And you may know that the, that's being handled differently in different countries, which, which you know, sets up a an awkward uh, situation where, you know, the very same uh, plant in, in one country would be considered not genome modified, and in another country it would be considered genome modified. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of, of work to be done just to help regulators and the public to understand what is what is going on what is this te- what does this technology mean is it safe and and um, and then how do we deploy it in ways that will solve real world problems
1: I think you've touched on a few of things uh, that we actually looked in our research as we were trying to understand what it takes to take something from the lab into the marketplace and you know you described there were a number of scientific challenges in order in order to do that um, and then there's a commercialization challenge uh, that we discovered as well sometimes it's just making sure that as you suggested the regulators will allow you to sell something uh, but sometimes the difference between creating something at laboratory scale and something that's more industrialized and uh, you're really scaling up a, as some of the challenges you described. And then, you know, what does it mean to succeed in the marketplace? And you have to ensure public acceptance and, and all of those sorts of things. Does that resonate with you? Are there, you know, do you see additional scientific challenges as you look across all of the applications where CRISPR and other biological technologies uh, could be brought to bear? Have we solved all the scientific problems?
0: (laughs) Uh, Certainly not. Uh, Certainly not. And I think really those go hand in hand with the uh, educational and societal challenges as well. I think for many of us, there's such an interesting opportunity right now with genome editing to think about ways that one could mitigate or even cure genetic diseases. And that's not a pipe dream anymore. I think that's just on the horizon, which is extraordinary. You know, imagine being able to to cure everybody that is affected with sickle cell disease. But when you look into the details of doing that, Beyond the, the you know the, the immediate uh, technical issues, then you get to questions of how do you pay for that? how do you afford it? What would it cost for America, for example, to be able to offer that treatment to all? folks in in our country? And then, uh, you know, beyond that, what would it take to be able to offer that to people in Africa? It's a big challenge. So I think one of the things that I've been working on lately is to really start thinking about how we can ensure that this technology is widely available. And so how do you do that? And I think, frankly, it has to begin with the scientists and the science. You know, I think we have to be, from the very beginning, asking ourselves, how do we ensure that all of the steps for application of this technology are as affordable and accessible as possible?
1: And what you're saying is, in some cases, if we do things right, literally people can be cured of these diseases. Is that right?
0: It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, for thalassemias, again, these are diseases, blood disorders that arise from often a a single gene that has a a faulty letter in it, you know, and um, in the past, that could be studied, it could be uh, investigated in animal models, but the idea that you could actually do something in a person to correct that disease-causing mutation was, you know, completely science fiction. And now we 're really on the verge of being able to do exactly that, which is is just remarkable and um, and I think it, it really does open the door to a new era of medicine where in the future, people can imagine a time when the their entire DNA sequence will be known, and perhaps all of us will have it in a you know carried around we carry it around on a chip or of some kind, or maybe it 's in the sitting in the cloud somewhere and you know when we have a medical condition the genetic basis for that can be identified quickly. And perhaps uh, rather than having to just say, well, I'm sorry, you know, you've got this genetic situation, you need to monitor it. There will actually be ways to correct it at the the source and not have to worry about that disease ever again.
1: So you could imagine, you know, taking some stem cells, using CRISPR in order to change that problematic spelling and then bring it back to the patient and they'd be cured. But it's interesting because that does create a bit of a commercial dilemma, right? I mean, I think there was an investment bank who said curing disease is not necessarily a good business model because, you know, you can't sell somebody drugs or whatever or treatment for the rest of their lives. How do you see that playing out? If we can literally, you know, with one treatment, cure a disease, how would that work?
0: Well, I think it does raise the question of, you know, maybe coming up with a completely different model for how we think about therapeutics and how we pay for them. So one idea that's been floated, and I, I don't know if this will catch on or not, but, you know, is, is, is more of a uh, sort of the installment plan, you know, where, you, <laughs> you know, we have a mortgage on our house, maybe we have eventually a sort of a similar kind of thing on our health where, um, you know, you have a, a one-time therapy that is curative of a disease it's expensive, but the way it gets paid out is just over time. It's effectively just a, you know, it's an investment that's made in someone's lifelong health. And um, insurance, you could imagine insurance companies changing their model to accommodate that kind of a system where we could ensure that people who need a one-time but expensive treatment for a rare disease, so there wouldn't be you know, any large number of people for any one of these rare diseases that would need this particular treatment. But if they do, it's there and the payment occurs over a a longer sort of an extended period of time.
1: Um, I know that you've also talked about some of the potential ethical challenges. So it's hard to argue against curing a disease, which is going to cause someone, you know, to have a shorter life or to have a, uh, you know, a much reduced Quality of life was another way of saying a painful condition. Um, But if we think about, you know, the ability to change who we are or, you know, pick traits in our children, um, how do you think about those sorts of things? How do you address the broad topic of bioethics?
0: I think it has to be woven into everything that we do as we move forward with genome editing. And this was one of my primary motivations for starting the Innovative Genomics Institute, was to have a place where scientists not only advance their research and work towards real world solutions to problems in medicine and agriculture, but also uh, really take on the challenge of the societal implications of this and 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 weave it into their work, not using it as an afterthought, but really saying, how do we integrate our thinking about the societal impacts of these kinds of applications from the beginning? And um, I think that uh, in terms of the the actual uses of CRISPR for the purposes you're saying here, for example, being able to choose traits that get passed on to future generations. I mean, this is a topic that has received a lot of attention in the media because, you know, it is one of those things where it sounds pretty science fiction-y and yet we are again at a a very interesting point where technically we're on the verge of being able to do exactly that. So this is a really profound uh, use of a technology like this and I think really requires careful thought, because there's lots of dangers to, to applying something like this. And as I think many uh, listeners will know, there already has been an actual application of, of CRISPR in human embryos that led to the birth of, of uh, what are sort of Commonly known as CRISPR babies, you know, two uh, twin girls in China that did receive genome editing during their development, and uh, we don't really know what the future uh, outcomes will be on their effects on their health. But but certainly the the announcement uh, of this work caused an international outcry, and I think many many scientists, you know, really for them, for many 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 of us, it was really kind of the the uh, moment where uh, we said look this this just can't can't happen this is just not appropriate to be proceeding with and it has has really i think triggered a an international effort to ensure that there are appropriate guidelines for that type of of use of crispr in the future
1: there are ways that we can start to think about appropriate intended use and uh, you know inappropriate intended use how much do you Worry about unintended consequences, um, you know, Pandora's box. You know, we intended to do this, and uh, life finds a way.
0: Right. Well, I think it's it is a real concern because um, one of the things that I think it, you know CRISPR has has really pointed out in an interesting way is how little we understand about our genome. And uh, and and the genomes of lots of other organisms as well. But but you know, let's take humans. I mean, when when the human genome was first uh, sequenced uh, back around the year 2000, there was an incredible excitement. People thinking, well, now we have the you know we have the blueprint uh, for, for for a human, and now we just need to go in and uh, make use of that information. And I think it's proven to be a lot harder than maybe was appreciated at the time. And, you know, the genome is very complex. There's a lot of, of uh, uh, ways that genetic information is used that I think, you know, is still being figured out. And and certainly the functions of genes in uh, in the context of an environment of, you know, uh, sort of all of the, the uh, uh, influences that an organism has that are external to the genome are still being sorted out et cetera. So, um, you know, I think just, just, the, just the knowledge of, of the genome, frankly, uh, continues to, to uh, be one of the limitations on using this technology. Now, that being said, uh, CRISPR is itself a wonderful tool for mining out the genome and, you know, figuring out what genes are doing, how sets of genes are working together. And so increasingly, I see CRISPR being both the, the tool and the, uh, the technology that allows changing the genome sequence. So both understanding what it's doing in the first place and then being able to make targeted changes. So I think we'll see those two things going hand in hand, both in medicine and agriculture going forward.
1: Just if I could press this... Uh, a little more in terms of you know people describe it as the butterfly effect where you know the butterfly flaps its wings and suddenly you know many things happen down the road. Um, this technology described as gene drives, um, you know, potentially being used uh, out in the wild, maybe to reduce incidence of mosquito-borne bor- uh, illnesses, and yet you know, could that actually influence the rest of an ecosystem? Are those the sorts of things that you think about as well? And and what do you think people should think about the, the idea of organisms that might have had CRISPR or other techniques used being let out in the wild and what the consequences of those might be?
0: You know, you bring up an interesting topic of gene drives. This is a, a subject that's, again, received quite a bit of, of attention because you know, the ideas that it can trigger. So, you know, I'll just briefly to to explain what this is. It's basically a a gene drive means a way to introduce a genetic trait into a population of organisms in a very rapid way that doesn't require Mendelian inheritance. Um, You know, you can imagine taking a population of, let's say, mosquitoes, one of the organisms where this is being applied, And you could imagine introducing a trait into a population of mosquitoes very quickly using a tool like CRISPR so that you could, in principle, either sterilize those mosquitoes or create mosquitoes that were impervious to infection by parasites and avoid spreading viruses that would be normally mosquito borne these are the kinds of applications that are actively being explored right now using crispr as a, a gene drive technology now the flip side is that you know as you alluded to you could imagine that a trait that gets spread in such a fashion could get out of control you know you could find that uh, you've caused extinction in a an insect population that provided essential food for bats for example and you know how would that end up affecting you know the whole ecosystem and so i think i think these are all things that are still very much under experimental investigation and so it's it's just another example where you know here here we are with a a very powerful tool and it's essential that uh, we take the appropriate time to assess it and analyze it work with it safely in, in the laboratory prior to ever releasing it into the environment and uh, having something happen that would be difficult to pull back.
1: If you don't mind, I'd love to shift gears just a little bit, uh, you know, in addition to all of the contributions you made in the academy and research, you've also founded companies, uh, you know, you're involved in a number of different things. Uh, if, if we could just take the commercial lens on things, what have you learned from your work, either as an investor or a founder or an operator of companies, which is unique to this area of biology that might inform other business people? What, what have you learned in the business of biology?
0: I guess one thing I've learned is that it can be incredibly motivating to have a particular goal in mind and build a team around that goal. to to solve a problem. And for people that are in business, this this sounds like, well, yeah, we do that every day. But, you know, if you're in academic science, as I have been for my whole career, this is, you know, in some ways, a a bit of a foreign concept. But, you know, I I have found that it's it's incredibly fun to identify a problem that a group of people can all agree to that, yep, that's something we need to solve, and then uh, build the team that's going to solve it. And, and the other thing is that, and again, for po- folks in business, this is no surprise, but you know, every, every team and every company is different, you know, just no matter what. It's just because it's about people, right? So every single company is different. It has a different culture, uh, a, a different feel to it. And, uh, and I also find that fascinating because I, I guess fundamentally, I, I really enjoy working with people. So I, I find that you know, working with these teams is, is very interesting and each one needs a different you know a different touch right a different set of inputs to be their best and and i really find that to be rewarding
1: that's terrific and i i, I think that'll resonate with a lot of uh, you know our listeners who will be leaders in business I, i'm curious for you know someone who's outside or if seemingly far from biological sciences you know th- you know a, a chairman of a bank or um you know the ceo of an industrial company how should they think about that? You know, this you know what we're describing as a biological revolution. Is it something they should just worry about in terms of their own health, or does it have you know more implications for what seems to be a, an industry that might be farther away from uh, you know pharmaceuticals, for instance?
0: Well, I think that what we're going to see over the next decade or so is that increasingly biology and the intersection of biology and information science computer science is going to affect us in ways that we couldn't have imagined previously or maybe can't even imagine today you know but i think that you know increasingly we're going to see Biological solutions to problems that in the past seemingly had nothing to do with biology. Going forward, you know, a combination of biologically based technologies coupled with large data and being able to use um, machine learning to figure out trends, figure out genetic susceptibilities to diseases, figure out how to engineer organisms so that they produce useful chemicals. You know, these are all the kinds of things that I think are going to be increasingly possible going forward because of the advance of these technologies.
1: Could we talk a little bit about gender, uh, gender within science, um, business, and in all the domains that you've you worked on? Female representation in the biosciences is much better than it is in my home discipline of computer science, and yet, you know, my understanding is there are still some challenges. How do you see things, uh, you know, currently, and how they might play out in the future?
0: I think gender balance is, first of all, incredibly important in in any field. You know, good ideas come from everywhere, and in my experience, you just can't predict, you know, who who's going to come up with the next clever idea, invention, experiment, et cetera. And, and so, you know, I have found in, in my own work and, you know, I work at a, a public university that fortunately brings in students from every possible background, from every possible country. And I think that, you know, gender diversity is the same, you know, we just, we need to be empowering all of us, you know, and I think traditionally women have been excluded from science and technology, not completely, but certainly uh, in in many ways, uh, it's been hard for women. There's no sort of one easy answer to this, but I I do think that it's all about just uh, creating environments and cultures where people feel enabled. And I I certainly aim to do that in my own uh, research groups, in the companies that I work with. We always try to make sure that we have a good widespread representation of scientists uh, from all walks of life so that it's clear that, you know, we support diversity, we value that, and we appreciate that it's fundamental to uh, doing creative work.
1: Hopefully we can change the trajectory of things going forward. How, How do you think about your legacy?
0: When I think about my legacy, I guess what I'm proudest of is the people that I've had the honor to work with and who have left my lab and gone off and done great things on their own. I feel so proud of the folks that, you know, that are now either running academic labs or are working at companies or have other other roles they're playing whether it's in the law, whether it's in public policy, science education, communication, you know, I've I've now been running a lab 25 years. So you can imagine after, you know, after that amount of time, there's uh there's quite a few folks that have uh, gone off and, and done great things. And I think that's really what, I feel the best about in my career, because, you know, there's always there's always the next experiment you can do at, You know, uh, there may or may not ever be another CRISPR moment for me, you know, but in the end, I think it's really about creating a, a future for science. And the future is is the people that we train. That's really what it's all about for me.
1: I think nurturing the next generation is an incredible privilege uh, and a great joy, so that totally resonates with me. If you don't mind, I'd love to do just a, a one more thing, which is a quick lightning round of quick questions, quick answers. They're meant to be fun. If you don't like one, you could just say pass. Are you willing to do that with me? Sure. So here we go. Uh, first, what's your favorite source of information about biological innovations? Twitter. What's the one thing you wish that people understood about CRISPR?
0: Uh oh boy. I guess I wish I, I wish they understood that it's uh it's an ancient immune system in bugs.
1: What's the number one thing that people get wrong about CRISPR?
0: Oh boy. Uh these are these are stumping me. Um <laughs> they they I think that what they get wrong is that it's it's not a it's not a cure all. It's a, you know, it's a powerful tool but it it can't do everything.
1: What excites you most about the biological revolution?
0: Thinking about what's next and how we get there.
1: What worries you most about the biological revolution?
0: Technology getting ahead of itself and people uh, proceeding to do things that can be done but really should not be done.
1: What application of biological technologies is most underhyped or under-recognized for its potential?
0: I think it would have to be work in plants and agriculture. I think it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's going to be extremely impactful.
1: What application of biological innovation is most overhyped?
0: CRISPR babies.
1: What job would you be doing today if you weren't doing what you're doing now?
0: I think I'd be an architect. I like building things.
1: Not tomato farmer.
0: Well, that too. That that that's very possible.
1: <laughs> okay. Do do you do you think about the genetics of tomatoes when you're? I mean, do you think of yourself as a latter day Mendel or something like that? Or is it just, is it completely just something you do for fun?
0: Mostly I just do it for fun, but I often tell my son, you know, if I had another life to live, I would probably be a plant geneticist because I just, I think plant genetics is really fascinating.
1: Did having a childhood in Hawaii have anything to do with that? Because they have crazy plants there, right?
0: (laughs) <laughs> they do have crazy plants there. Yes, I'm sure it has a lot to do with it.
1: <laughs> All right. Sorry, those weren't lightning round questions. That was me just being curious. All right, I have two more lightning round questions. To a student who is entering college today, what would you recommend that they study?
0: Computer science or robotics.
1: Wait, now I have to follow up. We just went on about how amazing biology is, and you're saying computer science and robotics. Well, uh, how do I square that circle?
0: Well, because I think those are going to intersect with biology. You know, I really do. And I I think, so when I say computer science and robotics, I increasingly, I think that those fields increasingly will include biology because they have to.
1: That is amazing. And then finally, what one piece of advice do you have for listeners of this podcast?
0: Pay attention to what's happening in biology because uh, it's changing very, very, very quickly.
1: Great. Jennifer, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, for sharing some of your insights.
0: Thank you, Michael. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at mckinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Anna Bernasek. Our producer is Lauren Melling, and our audio engineer is Colin Warren.